Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. If you're about to get engaged, we've got good news. Smythe Jewelers makes it easy to choose your one-of-a-kind ring for your one-of-a-kind love. As a Takori Platinum Partner, Smythe offers the largest Takori selections of Takori jewelry anywhere in the world. Handcrafted in California, Takori rings epitomize elegance, style, and a refreshing Pacific. We invite you to shop confidently at one of our three locations or visit us online at SmytheJewelers.com to order your ring from anywhere. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome into Garden of Doom. And this week we are very fortunate to be joined by Ginny Myers Sane. She's a best-selling author on the New York Times. I think our first New York Times best-selling author. I know we've had some Amazon bestsellers in several categories, but uh, I'm not sure, so I'm going to go with, yes, our first New York Times bestselling author of two books, Dark and Shallow Lies from 21 and Secrets So Deep from this very year, 2022, uh, both from Razorbill Books, uh, Penguin, Teen. Um, this is in the young adult category, but then again, so is Harry Potter and Twilight. So uh, obviously those things can go, as I say, broadband, but uh, far beyond young adult. Uh, One Last Breath is going to be released in 2024. Um, 
And while she's a theater kid at heart, uh, obviously she's had great success in writing, but she still uh, spent most of her career teaching, acting, and directing plays. She lives in St. Cloud, Florida with her teenage son, but she was a referral from a prior guest, uh, Stephanie Theban, who was on the Halloween show, who was a dear friend of mine for many, many years, actually decades at this point, from Oklahoma. Um, and want to get a little bit into the books, obviously, uh, but she's won some awards. Um, she won the Independent Bookstore Bestseller List. Uh, she's also uh, won the 2022 Crystal Kite Award from the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators in the Texas and Oklahoma region, and the Whippoorwill Book Award, which is given to recognize books honestly reflecting the complexity and diversity of rural life. Uh, her book was also an Amazon editor's pick and a Barnes & Noble young adult, young adult, not young adult, book of the month. Other honors for Dark and Shallow Lies include being nominated for uh, a Thriller Award from the International Thriller Writers and being a 2022 nominee for the Oklahoma Book Award. So obviously a lot of praise for the book, a lot of success for the book. Uh, I took a little bit of uh, research and saw on one site there were almost 9,000 reviews. On Amazon, there were almost 900 reviews, uh, mostly very favorable reviews, and people seem to be looking forward to the next uh, book. So we're thrilled to have her on the program, as my friend Mike Hilliard says from the Redline podcast. Um, so, Ginny Meyer saying, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate your time. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So, I don't know where you want to start. I think I, I, I we spoke a little bit in pre-production. You know, first I want to know what defines the young adult category. Yeah, so um, you know, young adult is a relatively new category, um, as far as literature goes. Um, when I was a young adult, there was no such thing as young adult. Um, there were children's books and there were adult books, and there wasn't really anything in between. So young adults a category that kind of came into being, um, you know, I mean, Twilight is really sort of the first phenomenally successful young adult um, book that sort of launched that category um, into being something that, that was sort of everyone was aware of. There were always young adult books, you know, The Outsiders um, is very much a young adult book, but it was not considered a young adult book because young adult wasn't a thing. And so, you know, the, the main thing about young adult, um, especially these days, is it can encompass pretty much any um, topic. There's nothing that's off limits um, in young adult. Um, some of it's very dark, some of it's very deep. Um, you know, there, so it can be about anything. And um, what young adult is defined by really is the age of the characters, uh, the main characters. So if your characters are, you know, between the ages of say 15 and, and 19, that, that's, that falls into the category of young adult. And that's not always necessarily true. There are some books um, where the characters are young, but they are still considered um, young adult books. Um, and those are mostly books where it's like written um, where someone's looking back on their, their youth or something like that. So mostly young adult books are, are feature young adult characters um, in the present tense, um, you know, doing um, and exploring and, and figuring out their lives. The, the key to that is kind of that young adult is about um, finding your place in the world and finding yourself in that journey of self-discovery that we kind of think of as like coming of age. And um, that's sort of what marks something as young adult. 
Growing up is hard enough without there being supernatural and extra burdens put upon you uh, to be more of the outcast, which you know everyone probably feels like they're more of an outcast than they really are when they're growing up. Um, it, it's it's fun when you're you know we're we're probably similar in age when when you go back and you know you talk to your high school friends on Facebook or whatever and they describe you to you and you're like. No, I wasn't the cool popular one. You were in the cool popular club. And like, we weren't in the cool popular club. You always had the parties and all that. I'm like, people were just using me for the party. And it goes around and around. It's like people's perception of you and your perception of you, they're, they're usually completely different. Um, the other thing about being a young adult that I imagine is a challenge for an author is no matter what's going on, a teenager always is going to find time and space in their head for let's just call it romance. Uh, I, that may be too big a word for a teenager, you know, teenage love, but uh, puppy love or whatever. But there, there's always that. You, know, you can be being chased by monsters, but, you know, always somewhere there's, there's going to be like, you know, maybe I'll get a kiss later, you know? I mean, that's... Yeah. Um, I mean, romance is definitely um, a, an important part of the young adult category. Um, there are some young adult um novels and series and things that, that don't have that or that have it as a very minor subplot um you know it's it there are romances in both of my books they're not central they're not the plot of the story but they're certainly there as part of the subplot and you know i mean that's, that's such an important part of that stage of life um you know like you said that that first experience of falling in love or having that first crush or whatever you know and um we sort of i think looking back as adults tend to try to um, negate the importance of that, you know, by, by writing it off as puppy love or a crush or something. But, um, you know, if you, if you really think back and remember how intense those feelings are at that point, um, and, you know, in, in not every case, or even a lot of cases, how genuine that is. You know, my, my brother married his high school sweetheart. They've been happily married for, for many, many years. Um, so, you know, kids that age can and do experience um, love and first love in such a all-encompassing way um, that to leave it out of that category or to not highlight it would, would be sort of disingenuous to the experience of being a teenager. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, so there's the there's an old saying that says, good judgment comes from experience, experience comes from bad judgment. And I think that's what, you know, that's in, in some regards, that's what puppy love often is. And, you know, you, 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 you learn how to have proper relationships by not doing so well, you know, the, the, right. the, the first few times now, some people get lucky. Like, I think you said your brother there, um, and then it works out the first time or, or they're on the same page of they're sort of making the same mistakes at the same time. And it's, it's cool. Um, but yeah, that, that's fun. It's just, I, 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 you know, I think, I think one of the parts when I, you know, everyone tells you certain shows are good. And a lot of times they're, you know, you friends of different generations, whatever, and you check out a show and you go, this isn't for me. This is for a 14 year old. This is for a 22 year old or whatever. Uh, but one thing I always see is that the kids always seem to be focused on one partner. Like they always, and I remember being a teenager and, you know, as many letters there are and as many alphabets, that's as many plans as you have. You know, you, you never, you're rarely just focused on one person. And that's, that's always felt a little bit artificial to me on, you know, a TV or whatever. When you're 15, you know, if you can't get the girl you, you like or the, or the guy or whatever, um, you know, you, you might, you, you know, there, there might be half a dozen other rounds that you'd be like, 
that'd be okay too. And then I, I don't know how that gets depicted uh, in literature and media because I don't watch things for, for people that age, you know, generally, but every now and then I stumble upon something which seems to capture that without it hitting you over the head. Like I think Wednesday on Netflix right now is like delightful. Um, oh yeah, I've seen that, but I've heard it's great. Yeah, it's a it's a nice little surprise. Anyway, enough about Jeff and his awkward, uh, you know, disclosures about the ineptness of, of his teenage years. <laughs> Let let's talk about let's maybe it's probably best to go through the books first and then sort of talk about the the background. Um, though the the small and rural town thing, I think you know that's sort of cool now. Like Nope was a big sensation, and that was sort of like supernatural and sort of a small and rural. You know, Yellowstone. There's no, there's not much supernatural unless you consider the First Nations aspects of it. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's small and rural. It's sort of like the, you know, Americana, red-blooded fantasy kind of thing of, you know, uh, you know, true grit kind of thing. Um, but so the first book is Dark and Shallow Lies, and it took place in some place called La Cache, uh, Louisiana. Uh, Bayou Town, which of course brings me, even, uh, you know, to Bon Tem from True Blood. I, I remember that. Um, and La Cache is the psychic capital of the world. So what was your inspiration for this book? Your The main character's name is Gray. And, I, you know, the, the names seem to be unusual. And I have to believe there's some reason for that. So why don't you take us to this world a little bit and like, what does La Cache mean? Um, it doesn't mean, you know, it, it, yeah. Yeah. Um, so a couple of years ago, um, when I was first working on, you know, thinking about writing a young adult book, I knew I wanted to write something with sort of a, a mysterious supernatural thriller kind of bent to it. Um, but I wasn't sure what that would be because that's always the sort of thing I enjoyed reading. Um, so I knew that was you know something that I would be interested in writing. And I wanted to write for young adults particularly because I taught and directed um, theater with, with high school students for many, many years and just loved kids that age. And they were so passionate and loyal and enthusiastic and, you know, just just so cool to work with. Um, and I spent so much time with them. I knew those voices in my head. Those are the voices I heard. Um, and I knew those were the stories I wanted to tell. But I wasn't sure what that story would be. Um, my son and I we're in Florida and we had taken a road trip up to see uh, the manatees at Blue Springs State Park, um, which is a thing you do in the winter in Florida. You go up to see the manatees and they come in because it's cold. They come in the spring, stays a constant temperature. So we went up to see the manatees and it was very cool. There were hundreds of manatees all huddled together in the spring. But the thing is about manatees, um, they don't really do anything. <laughs> so we, we walked up and down the little spring. We walked around it. We, we looked at the manatees and we said, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Look at all those manatees. And then there wasn't really anything to do after that. And that was, that was kind of it. That didn't take up a lot of time. So I thought, well, we've driven up here from Orlando. Let's see what else might be around here that we can check out. Um, I wouldn't have any cell service out there at the state park. We're in the middle of nowhere. But we did have this old guidebook um, that I had picked up somewhere and shoved in the glove box years ago. Um, Florida like Tourist Attraction Guidebook. Yeah. And it mentioned a place called Casadega, Florida. So Casadega, Florida, um, is a little place um, not too far from, from Gainesville. It's kind of in central Florida in that area. Um, and it is the psychic capital of the world. Uh, that's what they call themselves. And it's a tiny little place about maybe like, 
I mean, I don't know how many permanent residents, uh, less than a thousand, I would imagine, tiny, tiny. And it has a little town square and the town square is nothing but like palm readers and crystal shops and rock shops and tarot card readers and, and all of that sort of stuff. And the only other thing they have there is a bookstore, um, a, like a spiritualist bookstore. And we stopped there to check it out. I thought, well, that sounds interesting. Let's swing in there and just take a look around. So we did. And I was standing there on that, the bookstore porch looking at all of these interesting um, business establishments all around Casadega, Florida. And I thought, what a cool place this would be to set a story. And then this question kind of popped into my head, and most of my, my stories start with a question. And that question was, how would you keep a secret in a town full of psychics? So that's kind of where that story came from. And so Lachishet means uh, the hiding place, um, and so that's that's what it means. And it's a um, and an, I put that town, I took the idea of the psychic town from Casadega, Florida. And the thing about Casadega, Florida is it's right on I-4, which is one of the busiest stretches of interstate um, in the United States. And you can hop right on and hop right off. And, you know, so it's very easy to get to and get away from. And I needed someplace more isolated, uh, a little harder to get into and harder to get out of. And many years ago, I spent a lot of time in Louisiana. Um, I'm from Oklahoma. I grew up in Oklahoma and lived in Oklahoma most of my life in Arkansas for, for about half my life. But I never lived in Louisiana, but I spent a lot of time there. Um, and at one point, we were down there. We took a, a cruise uh, down the lower Mississippi, like a history cruise kind of thing and, and ecology and nature kind of thing. And they pointed out, um, the guy pointed out this this sort of uh, boardwalk falling apart that was over on one side of the river, down, down at the very bottom of the river, and um, explained that that was the location of Pilot Town, Louisiana. And that Pilot Town was a place, like if you had a big cargo ship out in the Gulf and you were piloting that boat at sea and you needed to get it upriver to port in New Orleans, you could not... Um, navigate the river yourself. You needed to take on a, a, an experienced riverboat pilot, someone that really knew the river because the Mississippi is very treacherous, very dangerous, very hard to navigate. So those big ships would stop there at Pilot Town. They would um, onboard a, a riverboat pilot who would pilot that ship upriver uh, to Port New Orleans. So that's who lived in Pilot Town. It was just the, the riverboat captains and their families. And it was a little community. I mean, at one time they had like a church and a little school and a grocery store. But it was accessible only by boat, uh, one way in, one way out, and very small. And so that became sort of the geographical inspiration for where that story was set. And Pilot Town had kind of almost, uh, it had almost seen the end of its time uh, by the time I saw it, uh, because with, you know, um, more like computer-guided navigation and all of that, uh, it became, yeah. became less important, um, you know, to have that available. And then, um, unfortunately, Hurricane Katrina kind of finished it off um, and, and never came back. But the, the combination of those two towns is where that inspiration came from. Okay, very interesting. The thing about New Orleans is that it, it is sort of always associated with something mysterious. I don't know oh, if it's... Yeah. I don't know if it's because it's everything's French and the rest of us are more British or something like that or, or whatever it is. But uh, I, I recently um, did shows. I think they were, I, I know they were both in aired in October with uh, Mambo Brandy, obviously a voodoo priestess and a proprietor of Voodoo Authentica. And, and she referred me to Papa Czar, who's uh, uh, also a, a voodoo priest and, and a vampire. <laughs> Yeah, they interviewed him. Yeah, New Orleans got a really rich history, you know, with, with um, 
we've got lots of like vampire lore and we've got lots of, you know, that, that voodoo tradition and the mystery sort of of that from the outside of it, you know, um, has always, I think sort of fascinated people and just that, that blending of cultures and, um, you know, music and uh, all sorts of people coming together. And then all of, all of the things they bring to that area sort of get blended into something that's really unique and fascinating and unlike, any place else in the United States, for sure. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of like our Babylon, you know. Though you know, it's sort of like a, everyone goes to the mix there, and Mardi Gras is the you know, ultimate party, and sort of like right. you know, everything goes, or at least that's how the you know the the romance goes of it. So, right. so okay, so we have a murder in a town full of psychics, which. You know, I don't know if that impeaches the psychics or means that the murderer is somebody with a superior, like the Professor X of psychics from from the X Men. So, so what's what's going on in in, in this story without giving too much away? Because obviously, we want to help sell some of the books, um, if you you know, if possible. Uh, Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. And I think my audience is young, and the, the ones that aren't, they've got kids or no kids, right? Uh, you know, yeah, you know that's, a, that's a funny thing about um, young adults is I would say my, my readers are probably 50-50, um, teens and adults. Um, I get probably just as much correspondence from adults who have read and enjoyed those stories than as teens, and I think that's because, um, you know, the, the thing is, all adults were once young adults, um, mm. and we, we remember those years. And in a lot of ways, um, you have such like a nostalgic, like um, yearning for you know memory of what that was. Um, and it, you don't forget that. Like you, you grow up, you get older, um, but but some part of you, you know, um, stays stays that very much. Um, so definitely, it appeals to all ranges. Um, but this is a story about a group of kids. There are ten kids. Um, in this tiny little psychic town, all born the same summer, and they call them the summer children, and they've grown up together, a uh, very close-knit group, and one of them has gone missing, um, and her uh, best friend has come back to town. She, she had left and, and gone off uh, somewhere else and comes back that summer to try to um, find out what's happened to her friend, and of course, it's very mysterious to her that in a town full of psychics, no one claims to know um, where this girl is or what happened. Uh, so then she, she starts digging into what happened and she finds out there's a whole a whole lot she doesn't know about this place she has always called home and these people and um, she has always um, thought she knew inside out. And uh, so it's a it's a very much a book about um, small town secrets and generational secrets um, and sort of the power of secrets uh, to take us down. Um, you know, if we're not careful, uh, but it's also very much a book about grief um, and about how you move on um, after the loss of something um, that you thought would be insurvivable. Right. What what kind of research or experience do you have with sort of the the psychic world and sort of the other occult supernatural that, uh, you know, obviously that would have to go into the book as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I did a lot of research. I, I am a skeptic about everything. 
I, I'm not, I'm not psychic. Um, you know, I've had my palm read in New Orleans, you know, sure. like, you know, that, that's a tarot card thing and all that. And I, I'm pretty skeptical across the board, um, about everything, but I'm a skeptic who is really fascinated and interested in everything. Um, you know, so I, I love, um, those stories, you know, I grew up loving, loving ghost stories and stories about the paranormal. Um, I've never been necessarily a believer in it, but I, I, I want to be. I would like to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I would love to see a ghost <laughs> and be proven wrong or um, whatever, because I, I, I just, I'm really drawn to those kinds of stories. So it's not something that I knew a lot about. Um, it's something that I was always sort of interested in, like, peripherally. Um, but it's, I did a lot of research um, as far as different psychic abilities, you know, and, and all that. That kind of stuff and um, was made a really fun a really fun story to research you know there was especially um with the setting being in new orleans you know um because i had spent a lot of time there i'm really familiar with that landscape and with people and with culture um but there were still you know a lot of things that i needed to to dive a little deeper into so um a lot of research definitely but it was all fun interesting research what were there any commonalities or stark differences like what were the like the main points that you took with you that you said this has to make it into the book you know um it was just sort of the fact that um one of the one of the things i was most interested in was the concept of whether people who genuinely believe they have these gifts um were were con- were able to control those gifts or whether they were sort of controlled by those gifts mm. um, and that's sort of a theme that i explored a lot in the story like um if you have this ability um, either to know things or to understand things that are sort of beyond um, other people's comprehension. Um, is that a gift or is it a curse? Um, and then how do you um, sort of live with that knowledge and that power? Um, and is there an ability to turn it off? You know, if you're if you're if you don't want that, um, or is it just something that you're sort of stuck with? So that was something that was sort of fun to explore. Did you have to like familiarize with yourself with like you know the the kind of flora and herbs and things like that or different kinds of crystals and uh, yeah you know. I mean, like that's, that's like i said that's not something i knew a lot about um but it's something that i, I sort of find interesting and um, i think um uh, like for instance in new orleans you know i love those shops and the, the botanical shops and things like that you know you go in there and um everything is just like beautiful and and mysterious and uh, it's all smells so good you know so i've always sort of been drawn to those places and those that idea of that um but i I didn't know a lot about it so yeah specifically in in that sort of thing because um honey uh bray's grandmother in the book runs the shop and that is a bookstore and a crystal shop and you know so she's got all sorts of fascinating things in there and i wanted it very much to be that kind of shop that you walk into and it's just like crammed with, you know, interesting stuff and interesting smells. And, and so I did a lot of research on that kind of stuff. Sure. Did you have to learn how to read Tarot? You know, just barely, <laughs> just, just, uh, just enough to make sure that I wasn't getting it wrong, you know, um, I, I, because I didn't want to, and it was really important to me also, um, you know, Although I, I'm not necessarily um, a believer in a lot of um, like psychic um, or mysticism or spiritualism, that kind of thing, um, I do respect it and I respect the people that, that sure. do believe it and do practice it. And so it was very important to me that if I'm going to depict these things that I wanted to get it right. Um, you know, so I, I did try to make sure that I at least knew, knew enough to talk about what I needed to talk about. Like, how, how do you do it? Do you go into the stores and do you just talk to people or do you try to like, you know, 
employs someone, whether, you know, financially or just, you know, convince them that you're coming in good faith to educate you? Like, like how, how do you research or do you just read a lot well, of books? You know, I did uh, because I have spent a lot of time in New Orleans. I did, you know, do a lot of shop browsing and question asking and, you know, that kind of thing. But also, you know, now, um, these days, like you, you can find out pretty much anything about anything um, without leaving your couch. And you know, so I did a lot of reading and a lot of Googling um, and a lot of that kind of thing. <laughs> Hence the so, show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and we, we did have a, um, uh, what's called a, an authenticity reader that Penguin um, brought in to, to do a readover of oh, the book cool. before with the print. And that was, um, and although his area of expertise was not, particularly um, mysticism and psychic, you know, like that kind of stuff. And um, he was a just um, born and bred uh, South Louisiana uh, filmmaker who knew that culture and those people inside and out and the flora and the fauna, like you said, and the geography and all of that, just to give it a read over and make sure, you know, that it rang true and that it was uh, treated those cultures respectfully and that all of that kind of thing. Um, and, and he also had, you know, some knowledge about that sort of stuff just from, from growing up and, and being sort of surrounded by it. So that was, that was nice too, to have that kind of layer of, you know, double checking, making sure that we had it all right. That's amazing. That's great that the, like a publishing house has their in-house or internal expert that they can turn to who not only reads it for authenticity, but sort of is like a expert editor or consultant anyway to say. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty common. Um, and then they're not in house usually. Like they, they sought him out. Right. Um, he's actually a film professor um, at Tulane. Um, so any anytime, um, because I'm not from, you know, there's, there's a lot of different cultures, like I said, involved in, in this book. And to have written it um, without the inclusion of those cultures and those people would have been, um, inaccurate and disingenuous to what that experience of being in that geographical place is because it's so important to it. And But as someone who is outside of a lot of those cultures and outside of a lot of those experiences, and it was important to make sure that we were getting it right, that we'd done the research, that we put in the good faith and work to make sure we were properly reflecting um, that with respect and with authenticity. And that's something that happens a lot um, in, in the publishing industry, um, whether, you know, it's a, a different, um, whether it's like a, a, a racial or cultural or, you know, historical or whatever. And there, there are people that, that want to, that will come in and, and double check those specific kinds of things, which is very helpful. Yeah. I would think the flavor, it's like one thing if you're making a film and you're showing this local scenery, but it's nothing if you have to write the flavor, you have to make sure that you have the right scents and right. smells and the right insects in the yeah, right season. Absolutely. You know, when, when, when do you hear crickets or when do you hear cicadas right. or, or, you know, yeah. frogs or, you know, you know, you can't, you can't be there without hearing a, a cacophony of, of, you know, frogs croaking at, you know, starting at four mm -hmm. o'clock um, and people will know. Anyway, I, I would like to move just, and I'm sorry to warn you about this, but it didn't occur to me from, from this part of the occult to something that would be occult to everybody. How does one go from, you know, taking their vision putting it into a book and then turning that into published. So in other words, how does someone get published? How, how do you like? Yeah, sure. You know, um, there, there are different ways to do that. Um, particularly these days. Um, basically you've got two options. 
you can do what's called self-publishing, mm-hmm. which means that um, you know you write and publish whatever you want to learn and publish, and and pretty much anyone can do that. You can publish on Amazon, or there there are lots of other venues and, and ways to get your work out there. Right. And the other option is to be traditionally published, and um, which is what my books are. And traditional publishing is is very much the way it's always been. Um, you write, you submit to a publishing house, who then decides if they want to publish it or not. And um, these days particularly if you want to submit to a large publishing house, um, obviously like Penguin's, you know, like the biggest publisher in the world and they've got lots of um, imprints and divisions and that sort of thing. And um, if you want to submit to, to Penguin or to any other good sized publisher, you've got to go through a literary agent. Um, and that's because publishers would be so inundated with millions and millions and millions of manuscripts that they would never be able to read them um, and go through them and wade through that, that pile. So literary agents in the traditionally publishing world kind of act um, as, I don't want to say a gatekeeper, but that's kind of what it is, um, to make sure that the, the publishing houses get the best work submitted to them, and they kind of do the process of weeding through sort of some of the other stuff. So the first thing you've got to do, obviously, is write a book and, and finish it, which is the step where most people sort of fall out of the process. Um, I know a lot of people, uh, a lot of people who have started a lot of books, and um, very few who have finished them. And um, so the first thing to do if you want to uh, be a published writer is to finish a book. Um, but if you've managed to do that, um, then you've already moved like into a pretty small minority. So you've got to find a literary agent, which is a part of the process, again, where a lot of people kind of get solved because it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, it takes some people years and years to find an agent. I was pretty lucky. It, it didn't take me quite you know, that long, but it's, it's a really hard process. And then what you do is you, you um, query them, which means you send them a nice letter about how you'd like them to be your literary agent and a couple of chapters of your manuscript or you know, 50 pages or whatever it is they ask for. Um, and generally then what happens is they read it and you hear nothing um, ever again, as long as you live. And um, so you submit to 20 or 30 more and, you know, you hear nothing from most of those. You get a polite no from most of the, you know, some more of them. And then maybe somebody wants to see a little bit more, so you send them that. Um, but it's a really daunting process, and it's a really long process. It's a really hard process because, um, you know, literary agents take on not a huge number of clients. So it's a, it's a really hard process. And they get, I think, you know, agents get hundreds of query submissions a week, um, particularly, you know, big top agents. And to get their attention is very, very difficult. So that's a lot of the pro- that's the point in the process where a lot of people, if they have managed to finish the book, kind of that's where a lot of them next get stalled out. But if you get the agent, then then you're great. You kind of work with your agent, get that manuscript polished up, ready to go, and and start the submission process. And you know, so then the agent is the one that sends that manuscript out to publishers, and their job as an agent is to know which publishers, uh, and more specifically, which editors at which, pu- which publishing company to get which manuscript in front of. Um, so hopefully they know what they're doing, they, they submit it out to the right people. And um, for Dark and Shallow Lies, um, that process went really quickly. It was on submission less than a week before it sold at auction. Um, some books you know, take multiple rounds of submission before they land in the right place. Um, so Wait, what's what's that mean? Auction? Does that mean the different publishing houses bid on the rights? Yeah, so, you know, it's just what it sounds like. Um, so, we, um, so for the first round of submissions, my agent sent that manuscript out, I think, to ten different publishers, and I think we had six that were were seriously interested. 
um, and then maybe five or so that ended up in an auction, which which is basically a bidding situation, yeah, where they they bid on that manuscript and, and it happens in rounds, you know, and so this is this is the first offer from these companies, and then then we'd go up, say, what's your next offer and your next offer until we get to kind of a final round, like make your best and final offer, um, and and that's it's it's just like any other auction. Is the uh, is it always the most money wins, or do some uh, publishers yeah, not, offer better always. terms, like more yeah, royalties? I mean, obviously that's important, but it's not always because there are some things, you know, that can kind of offset that. For instance, maybe a faster publishing timeline. Um, you know, if someone says, I can offer you a little less money, but we can get this book out in a year. Um, you know, whether as opposed to I can offer you more money, but it's, uh, our next slot is two years from now, you know, for publication. And it's a long process, like to get a book from the point where it's purchased by a, a publishing company to where it's on the shelves is a long process. And, um, you know, that's, it happened for me in a year because it was a very condensed timeline, but oftentimes it's two years um, easy from, from acquisition of a manuscript to holding, you know, to seeing that book in a bookstore. How much negotiation do you have with royalties or commissions or upfront advance? I mean, especially as a new author, yeah. are there clauses in the contract that says, you know, as a new author, this is, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, you, you, you know, you get this, but if there's a sequel, then it increases to this, or if we, you know, pick you up for multi-books, then it increases to this, or is it, you make your best first contract and you're sort of stuck with that for the first, you know, whatever. No, you know, um, that, that is what your agent is for. Okay. Um, to make sure that you have the best possible terms. Um, and I, I tell people all the time, like, my agent is amazing and um, not only from understanding writing and how to like help put, make a story polish it up and make it the best it can be like he's, he's a genius at that but also just like shrewd, he has to be a shrewd businessman as well got to understand contract negotiations and all of that stuff but his job um, as my agent is to go to bat for me and um, he is kind of the go-between and between me and uh, Penguin, you know, to say like, this is what we want. This is what we're asking for. Um, you know, and he's, he has that knowledge to know um, what's reasonable to ask for. Like, what can we get, you know, um, without like just being like way over the top, but also without settling, um, you know, for something that's less than, than, than we could have had. And um, so that's, that's the job of a good agent to make sure you've got a really solid contract to make sure there's no clause in there that's going to come back and bite you um, or that you're going to regret later to make sure you get the best possible terms and to then not just, um, you know, a good agent doesn't just work with you for that sale. Like my agent is very involved, like in every email and every correspondence I have with my editor and with Penguin, whether it's about cover design or it's about um, you know, like financial terms or whether it's about um, any of that stuff, like he's, he's right there. Um, with me for all of that, which is great because most writers are not business people. Um, you know, that's, that's not often our strong suit. Um, so it's, it's really important to have someone who really understands not just the creative side of it, but the, the, that it is a business. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's very much a business. Um, it's very much a business from a, from a publisher. You know, Penguin um, is always going to be looking out for their, sure. their bottom line and, and their best interest. And it's really important then um, as a tiny little one person writer going up against, you know, like Penguin and that you have, or any, any large publisher, you know, that you have someone who really knows what they're doing. Um, and, you know, Penguin's been great to work with. They've, they've been wonderful. I love my editor. Um, I've had the best uh, experience working with her on two books, well now three, um, and just couldn't be happier with, with Razorbill particularly. And, um, you know, so it's, it's a wonderful relationship. It's been a wonderful experience, but it's still very important 
and to have someone who really knows what they're doing. Okay, well then let's figure out this. How, how do you select the best agent, especially when it's hard to find an agent? Like, how, how can you do due diligence and find out what agent is reputable? I imagine, like, yeah. you know, you know, everyone hears the horror stories about the, you know, the model yeah. agents that are at the, t- the local mall, you know. Yeah, like, um, I mean, that, that's very important. You know, I, I, I talk about this a lot, and having, having a bad agent is worse than having no agent. Um, you know, so it's important to really be careful when you, when you get involved in that kind of relationship with someone, because you do need, you do need someone, um, not only who knows what they're doing, but also someone that you trust, you know, it's gotta be, a, it's a really important relationship. And the best way to do that is, is like you said, to do your due diligence, to do research, um, to find out what they've published, to, to really look into not just them, but the, um, the agency that they work with. Um, you know, there, there are going to be reviews, there are going to be um, people who, who are willing to talk about bad experiences, and, you know, whether it's on Twitter or, or different websites, and just do a lot of research into it. And also it depends very much on what your goals are and sort of what your vision is for your book. And, um, you know, my agent is kind of like a, a rock star agent. Um, he's a sort of a top agent um, in specifically the young adult world, you know, and that's awesome. That's great. But being, being at a big agency and being a, a really well-known agent isn't super important. Um, you know, what's important is that he really know what they're doing and, and he does and, and really understands the creative side and the business side. And if you're, if you have a, a book that you are interested in publishing, you know, with a smaller publisher or, or something like that, um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a huge agency to be a great agency or, or to be a well-known agent, to be a wonderful literary agent. And um, you just got to do your research and, and make sure uh, they know what they're doing. And, you know, there, there are red flags to watch out for. Like an agent should never ask you for money up front. Mm-hmm. Um, an agent takes a cut of what you make and it's a, it's a standard cut. Um, you know, so look into like what, what that agent, what the term should be. Um, but if they're asking for money up front, um, if they're asking you for anything, um, Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. There are some things employees love hearing. Congrats. Nice presentation. Enjoy your vacation, Jack. Hey, there's food in the kitchen. Here's something else they'll love. At Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, a Point32 health company, we offer benefits that empower employees to live healthier lives. From virtual care to digital tools that encourage healthy living, we've designed our plans with innovative and inclusive benefits that meet the needs of every workforce, giving people what they truly value. It's how we take healthcare personally. It just seems off. Um, just, just do your research, and, and there are lots of websites and places and uh, people that will answer those questions for you and, and help you if they can. Okay, you write a book; it's your baby. Now you're trusting an agent to do it, and you're trusting that agent to submit it to a publishing house. So there's there's two cogs there in, in that wheel that are not you that have your baby. Now your your creative, your intellectual property. Are non disclosure agreements involved, or is that just not? done because once you trust the agent you trust the agent and the agent knows that the publishers aren't going to steal it yeah um no i mean i 
that that's I think that is a worry. I mean, it's a worry that, that people ask about a lot. Like, and um, what if I send this out and my agent steals my book and publishes it, like right. you know, or whatever? And, and that's it's just not a thing that happens. Um, it's it's like sort of an imaginary scenario. Um, it's sort of like <laughs> excuse me. Um, it's sort of like. And back when people were like really worried about like people slipping razor blades into Halloween candy, and mm-hmm. um, like it, it got up a lot of attention, and people were really interested in it, but it, it really doesn't happen. And um, so that's not so much um, a thing to worry about. Um, you know, I mean, I, I can't say that can never happen if you have a, like a, a really unusual situation. Um, but if you've got an agent, like, and you've done your research and you know that you're submitting to someone who is actually an agent and not just some random person who popped up on your Twitter or whatever and said, "Hey, I'm an agent, send me your manuscript." Um, then yeah, that's that's certainly not something that I would worry about. Who owns your copyright? Well, <coughs> Penguin owns, owns the copyright for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, rights and the North American rights. So, um, the way sales work is you can sell um, either like world rights or North American rights or like North American English rights. And so because my agent's a great agent, and I wouldn't have known the difference here, um, when that contract was negotiated with Penguin, they were given um, the the rights to North American um, English edition. So basically, they have the right to publish that book in, in, the, in the U.S. and Canada, mm-hmm. um, how that works. And then the rest of the world's rights, uh, we retain to then sell to other uh, foreign publishers. So Dark and Tell Lies has been sold and, and Super So Deep uh, will be published in, in the UK and by, by a completely different publisher um, in Germany, um, in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, in Russia, and I can't even remember where all. But each one of those sales is to a different publisher in a different country, which means for me, um, and a different, a separate advance and separate royalties and all of that. And so that is owned by, by different people in do different geographic locations. And the difference is if your publisher um, has world rights to your book, if that's something that's written in the contract, then they can sell that manuscript, say to a publisher in the UK or a publisher in Czechoslovakia or a publisher in Russia. And then that money from that sale goes to your publisher because they've sold rights that belong to them. And mm-hmm. um, as opposed to you retaining them for yourself. Gotcha. And uh, I imagine your agent helps you apply for uh, copyrights in those various other countries or the EU. Yeah, yeah. So, like, um, yeah, my agent um, is Park and Fine Literary Agency, um, and they have a foreign rights department mm-hmm. who they they handle all of the, like, sending it out, you know, to different publishers in different countries, and then, like, all of those contract negotiations and all of all of that legal stuff. And um, that happens when you make money in a different country, you know, like, and all of that thing. And so all I really have to do um, is when they send me the email, say, um, you know, someone in Czechoslovakia is interested in publishing it. Here's the information. Here's how much they're offering. Is this something you want to do? All I really have to do is say yes or no. Um, and then, then they handle all the rest of it, which is fabulous because that's amazingly complicated and not something I would ever be able to handle. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I chose traditional publishing over self-publishing. Um, you know, I have a lot of, um, I have a particularly one good friend who does phenomenally um, with self-publishing, um, but she is a wonder as far as being her own marketing team, legal team, design team, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, that's just not me. I'm not, I don't have that skill set. Okay. Excellent. Well, listen, I thank you very much for your indulgence on the, all that because audience, I promise you, I did not, prepper for this. I didn't even raise it as a possibility. She may have suspected it somewhere because she knows 
Stephanie's a lawyer. That's not a, that's not, I'm giving anything away because Stephanie was on the show and, and we talked about how we know each other. So you probably knew I was a lawyer too. Uh, so audience, if you enjoyed this kind of information, uh, this is sort of almost like a crossover with my sister show, Garden Views. Um, uh, but uh, you're getting on Garden of the Doom. So if you like this, check out Garden Views because these are the kinds of talks that, that we have. So now it's going to move back into the regular occult, into the, into the books, into the fun stuff. Um, before we move into the next book, what kind of, what kind of powers does Gray have and Alora have and like the other categories? Do you, do you get much into that? Yeah, definitely. So everyone in that town sort of has their own special ability. All of those 10 kids that I mentioned, um, originally each have a specific psychic ability that they have. Um, Gray, um, comes in and functions very much, um, sort of as the, you know, um, and you see this a lot. This is a sort of a common theme in literature that the person who has, has gone away, the outsider who's coming back to their home place after some time away and sort of viewing it from the lens of someone who is part insider, part outsider. Um, and she is one of, she is the only one of those 10 kids that comes back not yet knowing what her gift is ah. um, or what, what her ability is, is going to be. Um, and that's something that she discovers over the course of the book um, and discovers that, Although she was originally um, felt very sort of um, separate and cut off because she didn't feel like she had some ability um, or some psychic gift that everyone else had, she comes to realize that that maybe um, this is something she she was better off not having. And um, so it's very that's part of the discovery in the book is her sort of coming into herself and, and what she, her ability is and how she can um, handle it and live with it. Gotcha. All right. Well, I saw that the book was compared, or at least said, that if you enjoy X, you'll enjoy this. And one of the X's was Where the Crawdads Lie, which I know is a movie, and it's on one of my streaming services. I've been curious about it. So now I think I'm going to see it, um, because now I, I have a yeah, you know, reference. Um, I get that confusion a lot, um, and that's something that, that, that pops up a lot. And, and Where the Crawdads Sing, um, I I think we get that comparison just because of the geographical location. Um, like that, that's the similarity there. It's very much a Bayou story. Um, both of them are very um, set in very sort of secluded, remote um, areas of, of the Louisiana Bayou. Um, and there's there's a lot of um, similarities as far as the setting and um, kind of the the atmosphere um, of the story. So I think that's probably that's that's mostly what that comparison is. They're they're alligators and cypress trees and, and lots of water. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course, uh, all the Scooby Doo tropes. But yeah, I mean, we've had Interview with a Vampire, we've had True Blood, we've had a True Detective, which you know all you know in the Bayou. I'm sure I'm missing you know dozens, but yeah, yeah it's 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 almost you you can't even consider yeah, one without the other. Fascinating, like setting um, and the thing that's always drawn me to that setting in particular and why I love that part of the country is that it is um, a terrifying place you know um, the, there, there's anything out there could kill you um, <laughs> there's a lot of danger out there but it's also always to me been such a there's so much beauty there um, in the idea of this truly like beautiful beautiful place um, that is deadly has, is what has always sort of drawn me to that particular setting so a year later, now I'm sure that the first book took you a long time to write and you went through all this journey, but a year later you get another book published. Um, uh -huh. And it's called Secrets So Deep. Uh, yeah. And it is not a continuation. It's a, it's a different, it's a different young it's woman. It's a totally different 
around, yeah. And in a different place. So, you know, for people who don't want to get into series where you have to read about the same characters over and over again, this is not that. Um, so this is another teen, a 17-year-old girl. Her name's Avril. Uh, and she and her mom died at a theater camp. So thematically you have sort of a commonality there obviously i guess that you know the maybe you were influenced by crystal lake like i would or going to the camp or just or, or just so many people live you know in some sort of urban and suburban setting that the camp is almost the only ruralness in, in in their life but tell us a little bit about this book because it, it's it's more about Ghosts. It seems like it's more of a ghost story in an yeah. old whaling. I mean, I love that kind of thing. You know, the Flying Dutchman, Moby Dick, whatever. You know, any, any, anything. You know, anything bleak and because you got the water and you got the cold and everything's gray and white and absence of color. It's uh, you know, it's very much like the the thing and the terror. These are you know, I, I, I you know, it, it's like the closest thing you can get to to you know, space, like alien, and in space no one can hear you scream, well, try the Arctic, you know, or the middle of the ocean. Yeah, um, that that book, um, so when I, my original contract with Penguin was a two-book contract, um, so I knew, I always knew there would be a second book. Um, I did not know what that book would be, it didn't exist when I signed that <laughs> contract, which is a little intimidating, um, you know, but you don't want to say no to a two-book contract, so I said, sure, I can write a second book, um, and of course, like you said, it had to be written on a much uh, more condensed timeline uh, because, you know, it's under deadline. Um, but I had always wanted to tell a theater story. Um, I grew up in the theater. Um, I've always worked in the theater. That's where my heart has always been. I knew I wanted to tell a story set in that world because I think that um, it just sort of lends itself to that supernatural, paranormal um, experience, that idea of things that are real but not real. Um, is, is very much something we, we sort of play with all the time in the theater, um, and so it seemed like a, a good fit. And then to set it um, in Connecticut on the coast, I spent a long time, um, six summers, working at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in Waterford, Connecticut, which is right on Long Island Sound, mm -hmm. and that's very much where the sort of the geographical inspiration for that particular story came from, and um, specifically, you know, being in that sort of the, the theater complex, which is, you know, just right there on the sound. And every evening we would stand sort of on the back porch of this big old farmhouse and um, it was sort of the, the center of the theater. And you could literally watch the fog sort of roll up the lawn um, toward the theater and then it would kind of envelop it. And once that fog rolled in every night, things um, seemed so different. Like it was very disorienting and, and places that, that were familiar were suddenly unfamiliar and directions and distances seemed odd and sounds, you know, you could tell where sounds were coming from because it was muffled and distorted and bounced off the fog. And so that's something that I went back to, to, to tell that story very much. Very interesting. You know, I want to back pedal just for a second to the, before I forget it, because I'm 54 and I forget things. Um, what is an author's or your feeling? Yeah, I mean, obviously you don't speak for all authors, but I imagine there's a similar, how do you feel about the secondary market, like Amazon selling used books? Do you still get a piece of that, or is it just something that's it just can't be controlled? Or uh... you know, uh, no, no author, authors and um, traditionally published authors or any others really, I guess, and um, don't you don't get a cut of, of used sales. And um, now, like it depends on how it works. And um, if if Penguin, um, you know, if Penguin has like. They print so many copies of your book and they have some left and they sell those then to a secondhand distributor and um, you, you get a cut of that initial sale. 
you know, where Penguin sells it to, to a distributor. But as far as like individuals reselling and all of our like used bookstores, you know, and that kind of stuff, you don't, um, you know, and that, it doesn't really bother me. Um, because that's kind of the way everything works, you know, yeah. um, that's just how it is. Uh, and all you can do is, is hope that, you know, you've, you've got somebody who's doing enough marketing on the front end to make those first time sales, you know, what they should be. Um, but, you know, anything that, that gets the book out there, you know, it, so if you buy a used copy of Dark and Shallow Lives, whether it's a used bookstore or secondhand on Amazon or eBay or whatever, um, or your cousin gives it to you or you take it out from the library, um, you know, maybe you're still more likely than to go and buy a new copy of Secrets of Deep because you enjoyed that first story. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's how I kind of try to think of it. Um, it, it just, it's keeping it out there. It's keeping it in circulation. It's keeping it in people's sort of minds and in their, um, in their ear or whatever. And um, so that's, that's not a bad thing necessarily. So it's a, I mean, Amazon is just a giant e flea market. There's nothing you can do about it, but if people like <laughs> no, it, they not, like it. Yeah. You okay. know, um, and Amazon, you know, I think a lot of people, especially writers kind of have a love hate relationship with Amazon, you know, like, um, and I try to support independent bookstores um, whenever I can. I do a lot of meet and greets and book signings and things with independent bookstores. Love working with independent bookstores. But the reality is um, that if you if you want to be a writer, you've got to work with Amazon. And Amazon's been, been really good to me. Um, Dark Shell Lies was the editor's pick, which was was really helpful. Um, you know, so, so there are some great things about that relationship, too. Um, and you just kind of try to, to, to go with that and, and lead with that and <laughs> kind of... Um, do you think Not that on anything else? Do you think there might be a trend that the literary agents will try to negotiate in contracts that the author can self-publish, you know, no more than twelve percent of the books on Amazon, so that you so that you could get sort of a little bit of the best of both worlds? You know, there are um, there are people that that do that now. Um, I don't know. I'm never first to think of really, anything. Yeah, um, <laughs> there there are people that that specifically have written in their contracts, you know, that they have, they can self-publish, whether they've got like a separate series that they're working on that they want to retain the rights to self-publish. Um, you know, so that, that is something that, that under some circumstances can be worked out. And um, there's also, there's things like hybrid publishing, which is kind of like part self-publishing, part traditional publishing, uh, where you work with an agent, but you do have some of the, you retain some of the rights, you know, that come with self-publishing. And I knew, like I said, that I didn't want to, to be a self-published writer because I don't have the skill set to do the marketing, the, the contract negotiation, the legal stuff, to get it out in foreign markets. You know, that's so overwhelming. And But some people do, and for them that's great. I also knew that, um, and this is certainly not the case for everybody, there, there are a lot of self-published writers that do really well. And like I said, I've got a friend that has had phenomenal success um, self-publishing in particular genres. She writes sort of dark romance, and that's like a really um, hot you know, thing in the self-publishing world. Mm-hmm. And But I knew that if I did that, I would end up making enough money maybe to like buy myself lunch at McDonald's once a week. Um, and I have a kid that was going to college, you know, and I was like, I, I sure. need to make some actual money. And um, so for me, it was important to look towards something um, that was more aligned with my specific goals for what I wanted to accomplish. But but definitely there, there are hybrids and there are people that sort of kind of straddle both those lines. And it can be done. It's, it's a tricky, you got to know both, both sides of the businesses, which is really hard. All right, well, let's go back to ghosts and specifically your ghost where you've got a young woman who meets herself and her deceased mother at the edge yeah. of, at the edge of the ocean in New England where I'm, I'm picturing it to be like, you know, midnight mask type, you know, uh, gloomy yeah. fog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that was, um, you know, that was a, a 
Yeah, it's um, it's definitely um, it's a like I always tell people it's a because I'm in Florida, and it's it's a beach setting, but it's not a Florida beach setting. It's a very New England um sort of beach, which is a very different beach experience. And um, but yeah, it's, it's dark, it's foggy, it's it, you know, it's um, all of that kind of stuff. And there are a lot of ghosts. Secrets of Deep is is a more of a ghost story, um, whereas Dark Until Eyes is more sort of a mystical um psychic um story. But the ghosts in um Secrets of Deep are not traditional ghosts. Um, there are lots of different types of ghosts in that story. Um, and the, I told you earlier that I started out generally, my stories um, came from a question, and a, like the seed of a question. And the question for that story was that I wanted to play with was what does it mean to be haunted? Um, and what are the different ways you can be haunted? And what are the different things that can haunt you? And how does that manifest? So there are ghosts in that story very much, um, but they are definitely not your typical sort of traditional um, ghosts. Okay. Now, without giving too much away or anything away, in in your version of ghosts, is it spirits that are bound to earth or geography or are they interdimensional? I mean, when someone meets themselves, there there's there's a question there. Um, so what what was your interpretation of ghosts or, or is that giving away too much of the, the twist? Uh, um, you know, I don't, don't want to say exactly what they turn out to be and um, but the question is a little a little bit of both um and it 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 turns out that um whisper cove which is the name of the place um where this theater is in, in the story um has um is very think of it sort of i i went into it sort of thinking it in terms of like the haunting of hill house mm-hmm. in um this is a place where things happen that are unlike what happens anywhere else. Right. Um, and it's a place that sort of has its own rules and its own, um, its own ghosts and its own, um, reasons for those manifestations and those hauntings. And, and they all come out of very much this, this unusual place. Yeah. I found three genres of ghosts. One, they, they inhabit a place, a geography for a certain reason or reasons. The other is like sort of, the more Asian where they, they stay with their families for better or worse. It's sort of ancestral uh, descendant type of, and, and there's usually some type of love misplaced or otherwise involved in it. So you know, they haunt a family or they haunt a person, which oftentimes, you know, looks and feels a lot like possession. Those are sort of like the three ghosts, uh, yeah, these, these ghosts, this is a ghost story that very much plays with the idea of memory um, and very much sort of blurs the lines between um, what's real and what's not real. And that's why I wanted to set it, particularly in that coastal setting. I've always sort of been drawn to those places that are in between, sort of the land and the sea. And, you know, like the bayou is very much that way, too. Um, and those are natural places, I think, to play with the, the blurring of the line between what's real and what's not real. Right, your geographic Halloween, so, so to speak, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or Samwin, you know, it's more appropriately yeah. said. Um, excellent. And you have a third book coming out in two years. Do you want to give us the uh, the trailer on that one? Yeah, sure. And right now it's called One Last Breath. That could definitely change. Um, both of the titles for the other two books changed multiple times during <laughs> the, the time between, um, you know, I, I signed the contract and the time they came to print. Um, so 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The, is it morning yet, deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Wake up with a little splash of sweetness. Get any size iced coffee from caramel to hazelnut to French vanilla for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If, it's, if you don't ever see a book called that, um, look, for, look for a different title because it may be different. Um, but it's a story that is set um, in Florida, um, which is fun. And it's, it's set in the freshwater springs of Central Florida. And it's about a girl who um, is a free diver um, in the springs there. And she's obsessed with a, a cold case um, murder that happened in her town before she was born. Um, and it's about uh, sort of the the connection she comes to find between her and the, these girls um, that died many years before, before her. Um, and there's some supernatural paranormal aspects to that as well. Um, and it's sort of that discovery of, of how she's tied uh, to that case in ways um, that she didn't realize. So it's, it's a, it's another creepy sort of thriller story um, with some paranormal elements uh, in that way. It's similar to the first two. Okay. Very good. So the working title is, one last breath. One last breath. But you're not going to change your name anytime soon. So look, look, look for the name and right, not necessarily yeah. the title. Look for something by me. Um, like I said, um, that, that's the working title. But often, you know, um, especially like when you've got a, a publisher like Penguin who does such a great job with like marketing. They've got a whole marketing team whose idea it is just to figure out like what is the best thing to call this book um, to make it stand out in the market and to appeal to people. So. I tend to leave that up to them. If, if they think something's better, then I'm, I, I never, I'm not a, I've never been married to a particular title, so it may change. Excellent. I, by the way, Hill House, I loved it on Netflix. I'm told that the book is actually different and that I should read it, which means I'll probably get it on Audible because I, I have lost the capacity to read. Cool. And I and I love Bly Manor and I absolutely love Midnight Mass. I wasn't so keen on the Midnight Club, which was more the probably the young adult geared one. Um I don't know. Uh, it did it didn't do anything for me, but that's not really what I want to ask. are you familiar with uh like are there any filmmakers or authors that that inspire you or you particularly love? You know, um I'm really bad when it comes to film. Like there are films that I love, but I I am not a film buff, and I tend to um, just go into them and enjoy them, and not necessarily pay attention. So when people are like, "Oh, I love," and they name a director or, or even an actor, I'm a lot of times I'm like, I have no idea who right. that is. Um, so that's, that's not something I know. But but yeah, I love and um, like I loved um, Hill House, you know, on Netflix. Definitely, I love the the atmosphere and the mood of that. Um, you know, and there are a lot of things um, I loved um, Bates Motel. Um, on as well, so like that that genre of stuff um, and that sort of atmosphere, I love. And as far as books go, you know, I grew up reading um, 
a lot of Shirley Jackson and I grew up reading Lois Duncan um, and, and sort of a lot of things along those lines. And um, I read a lot of like sort of gothic um, mysteries. Uh, Rebecca was probably my favorite book, um, you know, as an adolescent. Um, it was the first sort of adult book um, that I read that I was like, oh, I love this. And it was that combination of like atmosphere and and uh, mystery and romance sort of all rolled up together. And so those have kind of always been the kind of stories that I gravitate toward. And those are still sort of my favorite. What's your favorite uh, horror or thriller book? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, it's not really a, a my, that question gets asked a lot. And it's always so hard to answer because as soon as anybody asks it, and my brain kind of blanks out and it's like, book, book. Have I ever read a book? You wrote some. Right, the kind of person that tends to my favorite tends to be whatever I read last that I really <laughs> enjoyed, and so my my favorite recently um, has been a book called Just Like Home, um, Sarah Gailey, and it's a it's a really just creepy atmospheric and um, sort of claustrophobic um, horror thriller story. It's an adult book, um, but I loved that one. That's sort of a recent one. Um, there's a book called The Accident Season, uh, Maura Sally Doyle, and um, that was sort of not the inspiration, but sort of a, a book that I read when I was thinking about beginning to write young adult. I thought, this is the kind of story I want to tell. Um, this is the kind of thing that I like. So that was very much sort of an inspirational book. I also have trouble with favorites, so I'm not going to limit you to, to <laughs> a favorite. Uh, what, what are some examples of some uh, horror thriller based TV and or movies that, that, you know, are sort of in, in that are like your comfort show, the ones that you want to oh, watch yeah. if you want to be scared? So yeah, like I, I mentioned, um, Bates Motel. Um, my son and I have love love that series and have watched it like a couple of times. Um, it, that is, it's probably one of my very all time favorite series, um, because I think it's just such a creative take on that seed of an idea, um, you know, that really sort of turned it around and, and ran with it. Um, and I. I love that one. And Dexter is probably my all-time favorite. Um, I'm a huge Dexter fan. I watched it multiple times. Um, and what I'm really drawn to there is I, I love that combination of like horror, but black, but also comedy. Um, you know, it, it's such a, a like dark show, but it's such a funny show too. You know, um, and so I love that. That that combination always has really appealed to me. Those are those are the two that I probably go back to most often. Okay. And if you were on a desert island and there was one author you wanted to have their catalog, who might that be? Oh, gosh. Um, well, if I'm going to be stuck there for a long time, I'd want somebody who'd written a lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, so I don't know. That's a hard question. Um, I am not a series reader at all. Um, so that it would be hard for me to pick somebody who, who had a, you know, a bunch of different stuff. Um, I know a lot of people love series. I've just never really been into them. I, I tend to sort of get bored with the same characters. Yeah. And when I also, um, you know, just want to move on to something, you know, a storyline that's different or a location that's different or whatever. So it's hard for me to say. Um, you know, there's a lot of Stephen King uh, that I love, but there's also a lot of Stephen King that I don't love. Yeah. Um, so I, I have the same like, relationship with Stephen King. It says, this, there's, there. I either really like it or I'm really like, ugh, I don't like that at all. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. That's a really, I'd have to think about that one. That's a hard question to answer. Though I, his his son's work, I, I find to be much more consistent for my tastes anyway. Yeah, I, I just get I get a little bit lost, and you know, like the it gets a little long for me. Like, 
Um, you know, I, kind of the pacing, um, which is part of the reason I really love, I read mostly what I read now, of course, because I'm writing it and, and this is in it, um, are young adult thrillers and young adult mysteries, young adult horror. Um, and I'm re- I really love the pacing in the stories, you know, adult stories. You, you can get to like chapter 27. Um, of an adult book and still be like, when is this story going to start? What is going on? Um, you know, but young adults tend to jump right in and get that, get moving and, and the pacing. So I always tell people, you know, that, that's a difference as far as young adult goes, that the writing is not um, simpler um, or less complex by any means. Um, it's the exact same writing um, is, is, is for an adult, but it's the pacing um, that is really different. I think it might be harder because you have to sort of, erase some of what you've lived and learned and sort of relearn it again or pretend that you, you hadn't. It's sort of hard to put yourself in, in that space. Now, luckily for me, it's not hard because I'm, I have the maturity level of a 14-year-old boy, but luckily for authors out there, I don't have the patience to write or the maybe, maybe any of the other skills either. I'll just go with patience to make myself feel better. Uh, I also feel an angry email coming from my friend, Derek, who does the Wheel of Ka podcast, uh, uh, fans of this show may know them from the Midnight Myth podcast. Uh, both him and his lovely wife have been on my show, and, and he does a show called Wheel of Ka, uh, all about Stephen King. So I know that's his favorite. So sorry, Derek. I love, I love a whole lot. See, particularly, I mean, the thing I love best are the short stories. Um, like I said, because um, sometimes the other ones get along. But yeah, big fan. Love the short stories. <laughs> Don't write any angry emails. Well, the guys had like 45 books. They can't all be winners. Um, right, right, right. Exactly. And so, all right. Um, what's your go-to monster or creature of the occult? Oh, you know, I don't, I don't really know that I have a go-to one. Um, but I've, I have a, a long-lasting childhood fascination with werewolves. Ah. Um, that was my favorite as a kid. Um, and I still kind of have this, I mean, I think it's the idea of that transformation that always really interested me. Um, and there, I, I've not written a werewolf story, but there is, um, in Dark and Child Lies, I did manage to work in a little, a little werewolf thread. There's a, um, a mythical, um, that basically what he is is a, a Cajun werewolf, um, uh, called the Rougarou. Um, which is, is a sort of a half-man, half-beast animal that sort of prowls the swamps and the bayous of Louisiana in Cajun folklore. Um, and I managed to give him sort of like a cameo uh, appearance in there, which made me really happy. And I think probably the reason I love the werewolf, like uh, the wolfman was probably the, you know, the, the old, I don't know, like 1930s, mm-hmm. right. black and white, and was probably the first ever horror movie that I saw. I watched it with my dad when I was, you know, like, I don't know, like seven or eight, um, and was unreasonably terrified and scarred by it um, and i think probably the the first thing like your your first scarring experience and um, sort of stays with you and um, i've always kind of loved that that idea and that story and also the fact that it appears in so many cultures you know i mean that that exact thing by so many names and um, finds its way into every every culture around the world which is a really cool thing even where there's not wolves there's like in africa there's where hyenas uh, right, right. Someplace there's where tigers, um, but uh, where, where, what do you think is the origin of the werewolf? You know, I mean, I think, I think that's the other thing I like about it is I think it's a really psychological um, monster. You know, like that, like that idea of transformation into something dangerous, or like um, fearing our transformation into the worst part of ourselves. You know. Um, 
I think that that's kind of, that's a universal human thing. Um, whether you've watched someone you know transform themselves into something unrecognizable and dangerous, or whether you fear the transformation of yourself into something unrecognizable and dangerous and out of your control. I just think that's a, a sort of a psychological seed that, that sort of um, we all have. Yeah, it's a, it's a less subtle uh, Jekyll and Hyde. But, I, you know, it, it also like I think sometimes we forget that people told scary stories and made scary songs so kids can learn some, certain things. And, and, it, and it might have been the easiest boogie, boogeyman for kids, you know, whatever, 10, 20, 100,000 years ago to tell time, to know like the, the months, to follow the yeah. cycle of the months, because that, yeah. that, that was that was important. Um but also, like, it's like, I've seen articles recently that, that, that you know, people are, opi- I mean, everyone opines contrary things, but they said, the wolves domesticated man, not not the other way around. I'm not really sure I believe that, but there is something that, that there was for a time that wolves and humans, um, whether they were humans or, you know, homo erectus at the time, I, I don't really know. But, you know, they, they were competing for apex predator status in the same environment. And, and maybe that had something to do with it, that you were sort of trying to blend the, 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 the two worlds, but it, 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 it went wrong. It's like, you know, maybe it's, it's sort of like a s- stick with your own and will be stronger kind of myth. An othering, you know, one of maybe the oldest othering, I, you know, uh, yeah. before we had the hell people and the valley people. I don't know. Uh, we've always needed monsters, I guess, but. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I did need monsters, you know, the scary story. I think some people sort of think, oh, um, you know, scary stories for kids or, or, or especially younger kids. I write for young adults, but especially people that write like middle grade or and they think, you know, why would you write that kind of story for kids? But, you know, the, there's there's so much to be learned from from those experiences and how we deal with the darkness in our lives and kids you know kids feel that fear and they feel that um you know we we all do so to give them the tools and the stories and the vocabulary to kind of work through it and express it is a really important thing okay so i have i always have this catch-all question which there may be no answer to but it's what didn't i ask you that i should have asked you oh gosh um you know I, i think the only thing um that I didn't, that we didn't talk about that is sort of interesting is the fact that um, I, I came into writing and um, coming from a family of writers. And um, so I grew up, you know, around writers. My mom was a writer and she's got a lot of published, 19 published novels, mostly middle grade historical fiction. My dad was a poet. Um, and so I grew up in a house that, that always had writers coming and going. And um, even though I never was a writer, I was always theater. That was kind of my thing. And I, I, we always had writers in our house. My mom was always going to writers conventions. And I very much grew up in a house where literature and the, the written word were valued and, and sort of front and center in everything in everyday life. And, and if you ask kind of like what, what made me a writer, what gave me the ability to know that I could be a writer, I think that experience of that, my childhood experience was really central to that. Um, and even though I would have said at the time that I wasn't paying attention to that or I wasn't gleaning anything from that because I, I wasn't writing and I wasn't going to be a writer, evidently somewhere you know, in the back of the back of my head, um, I did. So that was a really important thing. Excellent. Um, where can people, f- I mean, it sounds like they can find your stuff anywhere. Go to a bookstore, go, go online, you know, but... Yeah. Uh, Where's your preferred places for people to find and support your books yeah, or anything else you have? 
Yeah, so you can find um, you can find either of those books, um, you know, basically anywhere that sells books. Um, you can get them on Amazon, you can get them at any Barnes Noble. Um, if you've got a local independent bookstore, I'd love for you to walk in there and, and pick up some copies there. That's a great thing to do. Support those independent booksellers because um, they do a lot for for writers. Um, but basically anywhere anywhere you get books, you can find either one of those. Um, you can also find me um, online. I'm Jenny Meyer Sane on Instagram, um, and I'm on Twitter, you know, and, and Facebook, all that kind of stuff. And so if you if you do all those things, you know, follow me there and you'll, you'll get updates and information and stuff about uh, books and about what I'm up to and about writing in general and all that kind of stuff. So lots of places uh, to finish. I have a website, JennyMeyerStain.com, that also has like updates and information um, and all that stuff. So you can check there as well. Um, but yeah, basically anywhere. What is the song that you want me to play as the outro that you would associate with your work? Oh, gosh. <laughs> You know, I don't have a particular song. Um, I I listen to different playlists for both of those books, um, and there's there's not really anything I can come up with that would be like one particular song. Um, but definitely, you know, something creepy. If you've got some creepy, something creepy yet pretty, um, that's, that's what I would say. <laughs> creepy yet pretty. Well, it sounds yeah. like uh, I don't know. Uh, Maybe email me a suggestion when when you're not on the spot, and and I'll I'll put it in. Yes, I because I probably won't drop the show for a uh, a week. I, I think this is going to be a very good intermezzo. I've, I've had I've had some very heavy shows recently. I've had some of my shamanic trilogy, and then we did one on who were the Huns and who are the Hungarians. So I think this is going to be a nice change of pace. Um, going into the Christmas season. So, yeah, um, but I will look for something spooky and pretty at the same time. I, 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 you, you put things into YouTube and, and sometimes you actually get what you ask for. So, I know, right? Yeah, sometimes you do. Well, anyway, thank you so much for your generosity. New York Times bestselling author, congratulations for your success. Uh, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you being on The Garden of Doom. So, folks, check out her books, buy them, read them, give her reviews. Uh, they make great uh Christmas, Hanukkah, any holiday you celebrate, gift. And listen, look, the gift of reading is exercising the brain, and that's very important. And don't be like me and forget how to read. Um, so, folks, thanks very much. Thanks for tuning into the Garden of Doom, and you'll hear from us again next week. All right, thank you. In the cool of the evening, everything is getting kind of groovy. I call you up and ask you if you like to. say all right love is kind of crazy with a spooky little girl like you you always keep me guessing i never seem to know what you are thinking and if a fella looks at you if for sure you're
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is officially live in Maryland. Now you can legally bet on all your favorite sports with DraftKings anytime and anywhere. For a limited time, new customers who sign up with code SWING will receive $200 in free bets instantly. That's code SWING, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. 21 and over. Physically present in Maryland. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus issued as free bets. See DraftKings.com slash MD for full terms and conditions.